Starting from a 90-year-old family recipe, Wickles are wickedly delicious pickles packed with garlic and peppers, a staple in our skiff and all shoreline lunches. Originating from Sim's grandmother's kitchen to a pantry near yours, from pickles, okra, relishes, and spreads, check them out to elevate all of your meals to the next level. Papa's Pilar is a spirit that embodies adventure. Named after the late great Ernest Hemingway and his boat, the Pilar, the name says it all. This ultra-premium blended rum is hand-selected from around the Caribbean and blended by master blender Ron Call. After a long day on the water, when the sun is descending the sky, end on a good note with Pilar by your side. Go support them at papaspilar.com or a liquor store near you. Steve Herder is a passionate man that has risen to the top of his craft, inventing and tying his own tiny little midge flies that crush large, demanding fish. But he's more than that. He's a lovely aging man that has developed world-class lodges, improved stream habitats, hunted elk, and chased down monster rooster fish when that game was at its peak. Steve is a resilient man dealing with major health issues. As a longtime friend, I'm extremely honored. He gave us time for his incredible story. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Steve, you've you've got to be one of the most unlucky people I know. I mean, your whole yeah. your health problem started earlier. Yeah, when you were on a, on a construction site. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was building a series of lakes for a developer here in Steamboat, and I'm putting a little uh, irrigation ditch uh, by the bathhouse of this uh, uh, building that's being constructed, and it was going to feed the three ponds. And the tracker hit the building, and the uh, building sagged. It was only a, a, a kind of house of cards post beam construction, and the main bearing beam came down, hit me in the head, drove me down into cron concrete, and uh, shoved my leg up into my hip and um, crushed both of my lungs, and uh, broke my back in seven places, uh, broke my shoulder in half. I had a closed head injury for two years, couldn't. Uh, and my eyeballs were crossed and so I had a lot of 
a lot of operations from that event. Right. And then you get breast cancer of all things. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. That's a, that how, was, I, how, you know, I can't imagine because when you were doing all these stream improvements, mm-hmm. and you've done a lot of it over the years, and we're going to mm-hmm. talk about that in a little bit, you go from the prime of your life to really not even being able to move very well. Yeah. And and I think that one of the most romantic stories is you you met Bonnie, I think, online just prior to that yeah. or during that time, and she right. nursed you back to health. Yeah, she definitely uh, brought me back because uh, two years later, I was over here in Steamboat at a Christmas party for the Marabou Project that I was working on. I had a rapidly, rapidly ne- necrotizing pancreas probably from that accident and they flew me to Denver and I was in a 32 day coma with that Bonnie was just my girlfriend at the time and that's how she met all my relatives because on the, <laughs> about, about the 17th day they said we're losing him bring everyone in we're gonna we're, we're gonna sing kumbaya so Bonnie meets all my friends and my uh, uh my relatives in, 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 because she was staying at the hospital with me, so they just thought a, you were on your deathbed. Yeah, I'm, so miraculously, I recovered from that. Yeah, uh-huh. Steve, do you remember when we first met? Yes, we were up at Seven Lakes Lodge. You came to do a, 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 a fishing show, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember that. I mean, that was so much fun, and um, but I think I think your legacy um, is. is it's quite. It's got a great spectrum because I, I think you're possibly one of the greatest dry fly tires of all time. Well, thank you. You, you huh. developed a lot. You know, three great lodges: uh, Elk Trout Lodge, Elk Creek Lodge, Seven Lakes Lodge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's go back to the beginning. When did you first get into fly fishing? And I know that you're, you mentioned your dad was in the Northeast yeah. uh, with a tournament out there. Uh, yeah. t- let's go back in time for a little bit. Well, my dad was always a, a pretty well-known fly fisherman in, in our area. And when I was, oh, I'd say uh, 12 years old, a friend of his said, Henry, come over to my uh, house. I want to sell all my fly tying equipment. He was a professional fly tire guy who had a stroke. Uh, so we went when I, at 12 years old. No, I'm probably 10 years old. Uh, we went and cleaned out his basement of all his stuff. Well, he was kind of a blue blood New Englander, and uh, he had every type of uh, uh, fly tying material you could ever imagine. Uh, it took three pickle loads uh, to get all the stuff out of the basement, and my dad had to pay him off over three years paying. I think we, we, he charged us $175 or something for that. But it, anyways, it took my dad three years to pay off all the fly tying materials that I had. So suddenly I had a, a, a cellar full of fly tying materials. I've been tying flies since I was you know, four years old. So but, your dad would, uh, inspired you to become a fly tire. Oh yeah, he never would let me have a spinning rod. In the 50s, you know, spinning rods were a big deal. My friends had spinning rods. No, nah, no, nah. spinning is sinning. <laughs> really? <laughs> he wouldn't let me do that. But, so, but, so, so how did your dad get into fly fishing? He, this is a long time ago. Yeah, this is funny. In, in uh, the town that he lived in, Wilbraham, Massachusetts, he used to pride himself on bringing home uh, 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 creels of fish to his mother. And he was going down the street one day with his creel of fish, 
and this pipe-smoking pipe smoking, oh, English professor from the East somewhere uh, said, uh, you're pretty good at catching those fish. Do you, you ever thought about fly fishing? My father said, no, what's that? And from that moment on, this guy mentored my father. That guy was in ill health, and so at the time my dad started driving at 14, he was 14, he started driving him around to fishing places. He couldn't even drive yet, but this old man let him drive. The guy used a silk casking glove and he had really wonderful rods and uh, would never call my father Red, who everyone called my father Red. He was red-haired guy. He was Henry to him. And so that old man uh, really schooled my father and uh, my father was a lifelong fly fisherman ever since. Uh, that un unique relationship with that old guy. About what year are we are we talking here? That would have been, um, oh, that would have been in the 30s. Wow. Yeah. Um, people know our podcast. Mostly we've been doing a lot of saltwater fly fishermen over the years. Uh -huh. You and I go way back. And I just think it's important to try to introduce some of the Western guys and, and, and trout fishermen to the podcast. And your story and, and the evolution of your fly tying, uh, I thought you would be really great to have on, you know, mm -hmm. and talk about these early years. But I didn't realize that you had roots uh, in the salt, you oh, know. Yeah, yeah we were, uh, my father was always experimenting with uh, um, uh, fishing in all uh, forms with fly rods. And we, we had good friends in Cape Cod, so we were going out of Cape Cod uh, fishing for stripers and blues, and we were fishing out of boats there too uh, because a, a very good friend of my father's had a really good fishing boat on Cape Cod. So, uh, so we, we uh, and also the, there was really good, uh, big, huge trout fishing in, uh, on, on uh, Cape Cod that a lot of people didn't know about. There were these ponds that had fabulous trout fishing. So we, we picked on those uh, fish in, in those ponds as well as chased stripers and blues all over the place. I can only imagine, you know, what you saw. I mean, Paul Dixon and a couple of our buddies, you know, have really refined, you know, their craft uh, on the Northeast stripers. Uh -huh. And uh, were you catching these big 40-pound fish that, that they are known to be caught in uh, that area oh we caught them with uh, plug rods and surf, big big surf captain rods, but we never caught any of the big ones with fly rods fly rod. but we did catch a lot of little ones in the uh, behind uh, this my 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 dad's friends in chatham had uh, some salt marsh places that were incredible and we used to catch uh, uh, small stripers in there that were really fun to catch. And so, so your dad was tying his own flies to catch these stripers back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. He, yeah, he, he was. My, my dad wasn't that great a fly tire, but he had a lot of stuff that was effective. After we got all that material, uh, he was... He, he was like uh, saying, oh, boy, you sure paint that fat fence pretty. That's beautiful. Because <laughs> I, I was a pretty uh, uh, talent, uh, talented fly tire since I was little. My mother is a, a, a well-known artist for Rhode Island School of Design, American Wallet. So I got a little her artistic stuff of, uh, for the fly tying, I think, from my mother. So but by the time I had all those materials, uh, my dad built me a little plywood box, and we'd go around to all these New England curmudgeons, and uh, they would show us how to tie flies. 
in that era, people weren't bragging about flies and telling everyone. You whisper secrets to your cousins, your brothers, your friends, but you weren't you weren't you weren't all crowing about how good you're doing or what you're doing. It was pretty more secretive, I would say. And these New England New England guys weren't weren't about to tell you how to tie that or this, but they they would certainly show a, a little kid. <laughs> Right. After, so we'd go with my little um, uh, plywood boxes, and my dad knew quite a few famous fly tires, and so we'd go visit them in, in the winter mostly. And uh, so I got to be around some amazing guys who who gave me their secrets. It's <laughs> funny because say. your dad was using you as the decoy. Like, get the secrets for these guys because they weren't going to tell your dad <laughs> anything. No, they weren't. But they were so they were so amazed me in my little fly tying box. You know, are are you a better fly tire than you are a fisherman? Um, no. <laughs> are you a better fisherman than you are a fly tire? I, I would think I'm, it goes hand in hand quite I, well as I, long I, as you can see and cast well. Yeah, I think I'm a good, uh, good stick. Yeah, with. But I also that. noticed that through your writing, and you love poetry. You've always been a writer. Yeah. Uh, you always give a lot of the guides, fellow guides, a lot of shtick about the hopper dropper. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you really look down at the guys who do nymphish, right? Yeah, I was gonna say if you give them a lot of shtick about the hopper dropper, what do you think about euro nymphing or yeah. high stick nymphing or no, all that no, stuff? No, 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 no. Is that profanity that. to your ears? <laughs> that is profanity. So, so yes, when no. you fish, it's dry flies only. Yeah. Well, I'm yes. He's yeah, a purist. Yeah. yeah. And, and one, one fly or two yeah, flies? No, no, just one fly. <laughs> No, two no. flies to the sin on dries. No, no, that's Montana. <laughs> <laughs> what does it have to be like under um, under twenty four uh, size twenty four hook too? Or well, it uh, well yes nowadays it does <laughs> because I've uh, I've just come up with a remarkable uh, small hooks that uh, changed my whole way of thinking. I, I I always had a lot of hubris that I thought I could catch all the big fish in the tailwaters and spring creeks and the, uh, difficult fish. I thought I, I had those, those, uh, those, uh, uh, I, I thought I had that kind of down and wired. And just five years ago, I had. Just move that water real quick. Uh, so, um, sorry. So anyways, I had a, a, a epiphany five years ago at the stagecoach, uh, tailwater where I met these remarkable guys, Frank Drummond and Sean Hart. I saw these guys reverentially putting uh, bamboo rods in cases. And who does that anymore? You see stuff in rod tubes and people go home. So I was watching these two guys, kind of curious, and went over and uh, talking to them. Uh, they, were, they had a great day in the river, as I had, and I was babbling to them about one of my famous flies, the three to one. <laughs> I just crushed them on this fly. So I gave these guys these the, the, these uh, three to one. And then I saw Sean Hart say to the older guy, yeah, let's give him some of ours. <laughs> so uh, he uh, nodded to, uh, to, to uh, uh, Frank, nodded to Sean, yeah, give him some. So they gave me a little bottle of their flies, but they told me what hooks they were putting them on and how they were catching. I was writing everything down because when uh, when I see two guys with good cane rods and fishing little tiny flies, I know they're the real deal. I had never, never seen these guys before. 
So I wrote down all the information about what size flies and hooks and stuff they had, and I had that little bottle. Well, I never use anyone's flies. You know, people like give me flies, and I'll give them. I, I'm <laughs> that kind. You of You only use your yeah, flies. I just use my flies. But the next day, it was on the tailwater, and I it was in the middle of a hot, windy afternoon. Not no, no, uh, no hatch of any type. I caught maybe two fish in an hour, and I was let, sitting on a rock, and it, I looked there and got the bottle of flies on, tied one on. I didn't even pay attention of it that well. I just flopped it out in the water. It didn't go a foot, and it was eaten. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, holy shit. I take it off the dust off of this frog fading, I throw it again. I catch seven in a row, and I'm just amazed at how well this fly is working, how it's fluttering around the water. I, and I, to this point, I haven't even studied the fly. I'm taking out the vicious mouth, dusting off. They the, don't lose that fly. But then it happens. I catch this huge fish. It was 21-inch fish. And I chase them all. I'm only using seven X, you know. So I battle them all over. I break it off. So now it's like, holy cow. I'm shaking. I, I can't believe this is happening. So I don't. I quit fishing. I go home and study the last nine other flies I have, and, and uh, go to special order those hooks and everything that uh, were so critical to tying this fly. It it became astounding. Uh, every I keep uh, contact with all the people that like to do difficult technical fishing like I do. And I sent those around to all my guide friends. We're all raving about this fly. It, it really is a better mouse trap. And uh, kind, of, kind of funny to be 72 years old and suddenly time smallest damn flies you've ever seen, 26s, 28s, and 30s. That's crazy. You yeah. have magnifying glasses to get them tied on. Yeah. I and have, what are you fishing? Yeah. You're fishing 7X. Uh, this, what's really remarkable about this hook, it's a, a big eye hook, right? You can put you can put five x in this in it through that, and because it's uh, the 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 uh, is like a circle hook, it hooks beautifully, and when you, you never damage your fly when you get it, you just pull them. Out, you don't use four size straight. You pull them out of your hand, and you fluff it up and fishing right right away. So it's a perfect uh, a guide fly, you might say, because it's got a bigger silhouette. People can see it. And you, you you don't fumble around. You're off fishing right away. So it really changed the way of thinking about fishing. And uh, what um, was this fly imitating? I could Im- imitate everything. I, I, I was I started with the pseudo clones in this river, the small blue wing olives, and that is, this river is legendary for the, the hatch. You're it talking about fun. the Steamboat River here, yeah, the Yampa, the Yampa. And then uh, I. Uh, uh, um, the pale morning duns, duns, it was a rock star, uh, you know, the yellow sallies, I, any small betas pattern with that, the, those hooks, the best trichos that I think anyone ties are these trichos that, that I've got that, that you can see in the water. Who, you know, that's the thing about trico fishing, you never know where your fly is, but with this fly, you can see it and it, they take it really well. So it's really changed the way. A lot of us are fishing now. It's amazing to us. How, how many of you that are fishing these areas? You're talking about the steamboat. Uh, no, no, all around the country. So you're pretty connected with all these purists that are yeah that are, that are tying their own flies, designing oh, and yeah. fishing only dry flies. Right, right. How many of you are there? 
Well, I know I know twenty uh, good sticks. I would say that are that are engaged with with what we I do. None better than that guy Jimmy Cohen that I talked to you about. He's on the Green River, and he he's he's the dean of the Green because all those guys use hopper droppers or, or right. they're, they're dredging and uh, they call it. <laughs> Uh, dropping jewelry down the ditch, <laughs> what, what they call that bunch of crap they do on the green. But the green is remarkable because it has all these backwaters, right? And every eddies. one, every one of those backwaters has big fish rising for tiny little flies, and that's what Jimmy Cohen has made it a living on all his career. You see these guys lugging these big tackle boxes down to the dot, and Jimmy ties flies every night. He's got a little box of those bugs in his top pocket. Here's my is this, <laughs> is this a dying uh, uh, art form? P- people who, um, you can take a one extra level that fish only cane rods and dry flies. Right. Is this a dying breed? No, I think it's... Uh, is it, is it, or is it a growing breed of guys who really focus on dry flies uh, I think and I, that art form? I think, uh, no, I don't think it's a, a dying thing at all. And any guide worth his salt wants to teach people anything. They're not just trying to put another fish in the net. And if they're, they're, they're that kind of guy, then they're just a shot, shop dog. But there's a lot of guides that, uh, young guys that are, that are really curious about this type of fishing. And it's, it's, it certainly is, isn't for everyone. Right. But the guides that take their time to, uh, uh, learn it and teach their clients. They now have clients that say things like, I can't believe I caught that fish on that tiny little fly. It, you're creating a magic in fishing that uh, people can't, can't even believe. So the, I, think, I think there's a growing, there will be a growing uh, 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 genre of this type of fishing, especially with this little bug I can't, you know, it, it bowls me over. All these years I've been tying flies I can't be more excited about uh, a, a, a way of fishing than than this. <laughs> I mean, you 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 were sending me if, uh, this fly last year. I think it's the chocolate that you're yeah. talking about, right? right? And you were so excited about this fly, yeah. but yet you've you've designed so you've give, you've given me this list of all these flies that you've designed. This one fly three to one. That means you catch three fish to one of everybody else's. Yeah. Is that what you call it? <laughs> the three to one? I'm just yeah. guessing here, but I presume that's it. Yeah, that was. That now was now all these other flies that you've that you've tied, you know, do you still fish them or are they obsolete now? Oh no, there's a lot of them that are rock stars on that list. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, the foam wing done. Do you see that fly? Yeah. Uh, Butch's Wiggler Chinese Dissident Foam yeah. Wing Done. How yeah. did you come up with that name? Chinese Dissident well, uh, Foam Wing Done. When I, 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 I invented that fly during the Tiananmen uh, Massacre of uh, in uh, in China. Tiananmen Square. Yeah, and I was fishing the Green River, uh, and I had a hundred days on the Green River. Uh, establishing a guide service so I could fly my guests from Meeker to the green. So that year on the green, uh, me and Roger Trout, my head guide, we only fished dry flies the whole year. It was the most amazing year of fishing I ever had. Uh, uh, you know, some rivers have blue state. Well, the, 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 the green was in that blue state. And I came up with that fly called the Foam Wing Don. But it sounded Chinese, and so I call it the Chinese dissident. And everyone's wonder what the hell you fish Chinese dissident. We just absolutely yanked with that fly. 
How come you've never taken your patterns to a commercial tire? I do. There's some that, uh, that uh, Orvis had in their uh, catalogs for years. Herger's Bastard and Midge, the three to one. Some some of those flies were were in the Orvis catalog. Was, right. Was the but beyond that, I just like tying for my friends and and uh, I just love inventing flies too. You were telling me when we first got here about all these great brown trout that are in the Yampa right here, or downtown Steamboat. Tell me a little bit about this, 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 this season that we have now, early Ooh. September. Ooh, I don't know if I should tell you about the Yampa. <laughs> There's a secret in Colorado, and it's this Yampa River. I know they're going to hate me for this in town here, but I'm going to let this, that out. <laughs> this time of year, there's big browns that come up from down below. A hundred years ago... The, is it a reservoir down below somewhere that they're no, coming no, up out of no, or no, a bigger it, river? No, no, it's in the Yampa. Yampa's been remarkable because the railroad went right alongside the uh, uh, the river down here by Yampa. And when they were stopping German browns a hundred years ago, they brought them in by rail and they stocked browns everywhere in the West. That was like 1893 when they first started uh, bringing the browns to right, the West? Right, yeah, I was... Yeah, I was, yeah, I was well over a hundred years ago, I, I I used to know about. I read this article about it, but anyways, I think uh, many of us think that these fish are in-channel spawners and they come up through uh, the Yampa. At the, in, we start seeing them in August and September, and certainly in October. And you'll be fishing a, a pool, and we fish the river quite a bit, and you, suddenly you see s- several interesting big fish that weren't there the day before. What's really remarkable, these are spawning fish, but they rise for pseudoclones or small blooming olives regularly during their spawning run. So they have the bright spawning colors and they're tipping up for the impossible little uh, 22 and 24 flies, which are prevalent at the September. We have a very good, strong pseudoclone hatch, midge hatch, and the tail end of some... Um, uh, uh, trichos too. You can you can you can fish trichos, but the pseudoclones in a, in a twenty to twenty four size are are what what is is and and it took me several years to get a pattern that I was was consistent with. And you'll see on that list, it's called the code cracker. So when I valid the code cracker, we just had a ball with this river because every every day from august on we're catching interesting beautiful fish and there's very little few people that are even messing with it there's one guy in particular he's a dean of the yampa his name is bobby bomeisel fishes every day he's the best stick on the river by far he catches but he doesn't tie flies which is perfect for me he needs you <laughs> he needs me i give him these flies like a drug deal i give him four <laughs> he comes to me shaking i need that one with the big tail well Bobby, maybe a couple of those so, <laughs> so let me ask you something so you said they come up to the yampa those spawning browns where are they coming from just lower in the yampa yeah or? they're coming from lower down in the yampa they're coming up um where the water's bigger? Uh, yeah. I got gotcha. you. Bigger, bigger water, water down and, below. And then what's like, you know, you know, in the Keys, we always say like, if you catch like a 150-pound tarpon, like that's that's kind of the marker. That's like a real big fish. Uh-huh. What's what's that to brown trout in the Yampa? Like what's a big fish that you'd take a photo with or tell someone? 20, is that? Oh, yeah. The the fish that are coming up from down below that are notable, uh, 
can be some some can be 22 to 24 inches you know they can be some it, really big fish and we do have uh, uh, several of those caught every single year in the in the Yampa. Uh, and and probably by most of the streamer guys that are in in the Yamper, uh, they they're catching these big fish. But those big fish are uh, often rising, like long size. Um, and the, the interesting fish I'm talking about are 14 to 20 inch uh, browns, and you, they couldn't be a prettier fish. And you know that it's a hundred year old strain of fish that you, you it's, it's kind of magical that that they even be that fish in this water. After all these years. After all these years. I remember one time you took me in the middle of the day. We went yeah. down there. I was watching you catch these great fish. Yeah, on that uh, Fish Creek uh, pool. And I went there last night and it caught a really nice 17 There you that, go. In that pool. I mean, you're so excited. I mean, yeah. I mean, here you are. This yeah. is, these are your children. Yeah, this is, it is just, it, it's stunning to me that the river has stay, stayed as this, this good. For so long. Do you have a lot of people down there fishing during the middle of the day like oh, you are? Well, there's a lot of people on the Yampa because there's a tube hatch every year. Every day there's a tube hatch. Yeah. You're talking about rafters? Yeah. yeah. People in, in inner and, tubes. And it's the most wonderful thing because serious fishermen don't come fish the Yampa because of the <laughs> tube hatch. people. <laughs> I just love the tube hatch. They give you beers. You get to see girls with bikinis. You know. get to catch a big brown trout. You get a, you get a yeah. pair, yeah. pair yeah. of hotties. And they float by and try and catch, catch a fish before they screw that up. But the, the fish go right back to feeding as soon as they go through because they've seen them so many times. Right. It's... I, it see. I was just gonna say. I don't want to interrupt you, but it seems like how you catch these fish are much is much more important to you than catching a big fish and a lot of big fish. Oh yeah, because you could easily tie a dropper on, and I bet you could catch twice as many as you as you would with that twenty four inch dry. Maybe not. Oh. Uh. Whether on the boat, on the river, or in the woods, Yeti products are by our side. There are many innovative first-class companies in the outdoor market today, but none more so than Yeti. In 2006, they took the industry by storm when they produced their first roto-molded cooler that was reliable and built for the wild. 17 years later, with a multitude of new products, they continue to raise the bar and be the gold standard for all outdoor brands. We couldn't be more proud to have them as a Millhouse sponsor and a family member. Duck Camp makes outdoor goods so you can outdoor good. From the shallow water flats to the mallard filled marshes, Duck Camp is there to make you feel comfortable and enhance the quality of your time in the elements. Not only do they make some of the best outdoor apparel on the market, but they support many of the organizations near and dear, fighting for a resource in the natural world. Check them out at duckcamp.com and tell them we sent you. You you probably would catch, but what's more fun than watching a fish eat a fly? A dry I mean, fly. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I, I don't. But, but but Steve also too. I love nymph fishing when you find a fish that is feeding under the surface, uh -huh. and you can see his mouth grabbing bugs. Oh yeah. And I love nymph fishing, to sight fishing to a, a fish that's feeding under the under the surface. Right, right. Is that fair game, or um, or is that taboo in your eyes? 
it's kind of like that was a long that was a long pause to you. I guess as a boy, it's, it's kind of like eating prunes. It, it tastes good the time, but you don't brag about the results. <laughs> oh, that is so. Funny. So when's the, when's the last time you tied a nymph on? Well, uh, you know, I have a wife that's a raging Visigoth and wants to catch fish to eat. Eat and uh, she doesn't allow me to be in a feet uh, fly fisherman all the time. So I help her with her. Visigothan. <laughs> yeah, what is that word? Visigothan. Vis- Visigoth is was was one of the um, uh, vandal tribes in Europe that came through. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, the guy I want to make mention of a good, great friend of yours, Chuck Fothergill. He taught me how to tie flies when I was twelve years old. But he was a great nymph fisherman. I remember we used to have these matchsticks. You'd open it up, and it would be like a match stick inside, um, you know, the the covering, if you will. But it was they were all lead, oh, lead stick. Yeah. And we used to twist these on our leaders. Yeah. And and uh, and Father Gill was a great nymph fisherman. Oh right? yes, he I sure think was. he was the guy who really started putting lead on the leader uh-huh. to get the fly down. Yeah. But you tell me about your relationship. Um, with, with the great Father Gill? Well, when I first started uh, in the lodge business, I had a, a, a name and, and I wasn't, I and I was coming out of nowhere with Elk Trout Lodge and Father Gill showed up at my lodge. He'd heard about me and him and Bod Sterling were writing this book about uh, fishing in Colorado. And he said, I'll include you in the book and your lodge. And the fishing was really good on the Colorado River. Uh, when he came, ironically, it was right, right in Trico time, probably the second week in August. And there was no better Trico River around anywhere than the Colorado River upstream from Kremlin because of the silt bottom and the thousands of Tricos every day. And that was in the era in, uh, in, in Middle Park back then. This is before Whirling's disease. That there was a celebrated strain of fish called the Mid- Middle Park Rainbow. They were 17 to 22 inches long. In Byers Canyon, up near Hot Sulphur Springs, the division uh, set up fish trapping and, and caught them, brought them up to the federal hatchery in uh, Fort Collins. And they were stocked all around the American West. It, re- it was regarded as one of the most successful strains of uh, rainbows anywhere. And that was another fish that had been allowed to grow in that section without much uh, interference. Someone stocked them once and then they became a vibrant strain of fish before whirling disease. So I had this unique combination of the best trico fishing you've ever seen with these huge rainbows tipping up. And and, uh, uh, and so me and Bob and, and uh, uh, Chuck, we went down and we he, they had two or three days we crossed their eyeballs. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, uh, trico fishing on the uh, Colorado River. So we became fast friends. And then when I started the Jimmy Hugo uh, um, uh, fish golf tournament at Copper Mountain, uh, Chuck became my uh, master of ceremonies. I, I was tongue-tied in front of an audience, didn't feel confident about it. And Chuck was so charming in front of a crowd. He was really great at warming up the crowd and introducing everyone. So he became... Uh, um, my pal at the uh, Jimmy Huga uh, fish golf tournament that I started there. And so it, we had 
And then in the latter part of his life, he came to work for me as a guide for Henry Kravis when I had uh, a Westlands uh, operation. And uh, I, I'd have 15 guys from all over the United States. I had Timmy Klein. Um, uh, Timmy Klein from uh, we were just, yeah, we were driving up here. We were talking about Timmy Klein when he guided up here. Yeah. So, he, t- he tells a great story. Great story. <laughs> but I, I mean, it won't do justice when we tell it. But Timmy, we were drinking one night, and he was talking about the first time he had a client on the river, and he didn't know what, you know, he's a saltwater guy. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. And there was a there was a fish over by a log in the bank. Or something, and he had a bruise on his head, probably from, as Timmy says, probably from banging against the hatchery walls and a, and a fin missing. And, <laughs> and it was, was a, barely, but it was an eight-pound trout, right? <laughs> so anyway, he was just talking about like how this poor client had Timmy, and he didn't know what he was doing. He just said, "Just hit him on the head. It's a hatchery fish. Who gives a shit?" <laughs> oh God. Um, yeah. The frying pan is a very special dry fly place. It's it's my um, my, my spiritual heaven because when I would get uh, done with my uh, programs here, I'd have the winter off in the spring, and I didn't I didn't work a lick except uh, uh, doing those lodges. You know, people say, "What was the best part of that?" And I said, "You know, that that's the five months off a year I had, uh, year after year." I, you know. I was fortunate enough to see all my kids' sports teams when they were in high school, and and I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't. I, you were my, free. You I were a free, free man. My lodges were very successful. I, I, I sell them out every year. So uh, I was over on the frying pan all the, almost all the time. My head guide was one of the most famous fishermen I know, Donnie Burks, probably the best fisherman that I had ever worked for me. He had the South Andros Bonefish uh, Club at one time, and uh, his cook burned him out when he fired her. And he retreated from uh, South Andros, but he always had been in Livingston. But before that, he was guiding for Bill Fitzsimmons on the pan. He was my head guide, and Vince Fitzsimmons poached him from me. And every time I'd see Fitzsimmons, ha ha, I got you, guy. <laughs> Bill uh, had a great delight in taking Donnie Burks from him. But it was in the, that remarkable time of the frying pan when all the mice were washing out from underneath them. And then Donnie Burks was absolutely the best fisherman in that, in that water up there. And so uh, I would go over in the winter and tie flies with him and then He'd be off guiding during the day, and I'd be off midge fishing for those remarkable, gigantic fish that we were catching six to eight pound fish on. They were free rising in, in, in that era on the pan. But not only that, the pan has always been good. I just, uh, it's my absolute favorite river to fish. Uh, uh, Is it really? Yeah. You know what's interesting? I fish it quite a bit, and you don't see those real giant rainbows. Yeah. anymore on the flats right, right. You really right don't. below the outlet i mean people catch them in the bend pool below the flats and obviously the toilet pool and some very few other spots but you don't see them like yeah i remember 10 years ago 15 years ago right. walking up and you could see every once in a while you could see a real nice fish holding and you don't see that anymore <laughs> yeah. i don't know if it's I don't know if it's the algae, the water temperature, the pressure, the micey shrimp are not as prolific coming from the dam. I'm not sure. We're having uh, Kyle Holt, who's a uh, um, 
he's one of the top guides in the Roaring Fork Valley and he knows the pan very well. So I, I kind of want to ask him those sort of questions because you don't, you don't see, I hear those stories all the time about those big rainbow trout, kind of like the Taylor. Like yeah. Taylor oh, River. yeah. That, I, I got in on that one. It was stupid cool. <laughs> I know. And I, yeah, I've been fishing the Taylor cool. quite a bit the last yeah. couple of years. And that's just, it's it's night and day compared to the pan, I for, in my opinion. Well, uh, was it a time of year and was it the flat just below the dam that where yeah, you were catching yeah, but, these big but, fish? But, but I, I tell you, I make a living between two big bends. From the bridge up to the uh, tighter bowl is, I'd say, 90% of where I fish. And uh, and lately, it's been the flat right below the tide of down to what Donnie Virtue used to call frustration bend. <laughs> the, and, the, the deep bend right yeah, there. Yeah, and right above that was Father Gill's Hole. You know, that Is that was, right? Yeah, that was where Chuck, and that's where I saw him the last time I saw Chuck was fishing there on a, a blizzard day. Uh, and he and I were the only ones on the river. He told me he was... Having his cancer had come back, and we hugged, and he was gone a couple of months after that. Oh. But I, 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 I cry to think about that because I can't tell you how many times I saw him up there, and we shared, we body kiss, cast for hours often with him telling me remarkable stories of the time in Aspen, and and all this stuff. We became pretty close friends uh, yeah it i he taught me at a very young age and and unfortunately a lot of people died during the covid um uh, years but i you know i had a chance to show nikki what i i saw when i was seven years old yeah, that's so eight wonderful. years old growing up in aspen that was before yeah. a river runs through it and there's nobody on the river and the river was just yours, right? You know, or a I, river runs through it, or in Montana, what they said, a realtor runs through it. <laughs> realtor, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but all the western yeah. rivers now. Yeah, um, is it hard for you to still fish? Well, you you fish in the Yampa down here, where there's no really very many people around. But the, no. seeing the crowds on the on the river, do you? Oh, no, but you got to real remember, Andy. I I fish in the pan. I fin I fish the Green River in Utah. I fish very crowded rivers all the time. I I'm forever not, you did. I'm not gonna get in a fight with any because those those places have remarkably smart fish. And if I can catch them with one of my flies, then this damn good fly I got. Right. Uh, and so I, I, and I have access to a lot of places to fish. I'm invited to fish from all my years. And truly the only place that really interests me is uh, uh, tailwaters and spring creeks. I don't fish in Alaska. People say, why are you in Alaska? Why do you, you know, sorry. I don't care. Step on one dumb fish, catch another. You know, I'm sorry. That's, 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 that's yeah. who I am. But I think a lot of it about Alaska is being, <clears throat> you know, with the bears and the elements. Oh, no. No, I, and, and I, I agree. But for, but when I want to go fishing, I, I hunger to, to see a great big fish eating a little bug. And that to me is, and then, then there's a real fight to it because mm -hmm. you're not fighting them in the rear; you're fighting them through your hands, and you're dancing around. And, and like my father always said, "Get them on the reel." What are you crazy? I want to, I want to fit through my hands. And my father was a big proponent of fighting fish through their hands, you know. And of course, you can't do that with a lot of fish, but with with most trout, you, you can. And 
that to me is an elemental. And, I, and it isn't just pricking the fish. I, I really believe it's your duty to get them in the net. And haha, I, I pricked another. No, you got to get it in the net. To, That's and, a caught fish. Yeah. And you, and you got to fight that fish very, uh, skillfully, I, I would say. And, and, and as the bigger, the harder it is and, and more fun it is for me is those giant fish on two and three weight rods, you know. That's, right. That's always been my, my game. And I helped with product development with Orvs years ago when they, they sent me a one ounce rod. That was going to be their big deal. And they said it was going to be a one weight, you know. And I, it was a stick. <laughs> it wasn't a one weight rod. But I told them, it's a great four weight rod. That's <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. funny. And it was, a, so it was a one ounce four weight rod. Right. Which they sold the hell out of because no one had one ounce for me. So for two years, uh, Orvis sold. So that was my contribution. <laughs> Orvis was that. Uh, With that, uh, that, that, that rod. That, I don't, I don't know you very well, but I have a feeling you like to go out in those crowded tailwaters and get right in the middle of the pack and just outfish everybody. It's fun. <laughs> it's absolutely. Am, uh, am I right? But I, but I'm not a grandstander, you know, and I help a whole bunch of people out that come to me respectively. I'll build out their legion. I'll give them a couple of flies and tell, tell them to cry when you lose them, you know. <laughs> but no, no, I, I certainly, uh, yeah. Anytime you yank them when other people aren't, you're you're having fun. But. Uh, Generally, that's where the most interesting fish are in these really crowded trailers. You know, the pan. I, I, I've had people fish the same fish I, I'm fishing to many a times where I no longer get pissed off. You know, I'm not there for a fight and I'm not there to be the big sheriff on the water and tell what people should do with their lives. Most times people are just a little ignorant and they don't. You know, to me, that's... Uh, the joy of the place is that everyone loves that river as much mm -hmm. as they do, you know. And uh, for, uh, I've had some great success in that water. I have a, I have a, 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 a drake that I can fish on 7x. You can't fish many drakes on 7x. Spins it all up. Spins it all up. But I have a drake that fishes on 7x that absolutely rules on that water. After everyone's been pounding on those uh, fish, uh, those drakes for weeks, I can go in there with that, that fly and do really well. Mm -hmm. And right at dark when no one's fishing, tumbling along the edge of the river uh, is bizarre. <laughs> so I, I, I have little secrets in the pan that I, that I, just, I just love. That, yeah. that mm -hmm. river yeah. is, means, and I've fished it so many years, you know. I go there and it's like visiting a lover, you know. And you think of those people that you were there with, and the foibles of the time. So, a new guide of mine, he had a brand new overshot, put it in the doorway, and the wind slapped shut and broken through. You know, those those comical stories of the, of the pan are always in my head. Right. I just love that river. And you also had. Um a great relationship with roosterfish, and I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got a great name uh, in in the in the in the fly fishing world uh, for the things that we just spoke about. But uh -huh. you spent a lot of time in Mexico running down the man. 
Yeah, I uh, tell, tell me about your relationship down there. Wasn't didn't you first go there after you had your that accident? And you're you were recovering. Well, no, I I've always been going to the East Cape of the Baja because a friend of mine from Summit County built a home down there uh, in Zacatitos, and that's the, where the surf is. Uh, unbeknownst to me, me at that time, that was the really cool roof. Those were really cool rooster beaches. I didn't know that. And so I've been going down there for 40 years. Uh, but when I retired, I uh, moved to Los Briles in uh, uh, below La Paz. And uh, we, we could get to 50 miles of beaches from quads. Uh, 50 miles of beaches from quads. Uh, where on earth is that possible? Right. And, and um, my wife and I developed a way of rooster fishing that even the guides didn't have. And we were much more successful than anyone. The guides use a, a big teaser plug and pull it in, and uh, you throw a fly behind it and try and catch these fish. A lot of times, I'd say seventy percent of the fish that are caught by uh, the guides do that with the teaser. Te- te- but, but you also too came up with uh, you, with your own fly to catch these rooster fish. Oh if yeah, I'm I, not mistaken. Oh yes, it's, uh, I. I uh, I tie uh, well every day I tie a new fly. This is the one for the day. But I was always experimenting with flies, and I, and I came up with a, a very interesting neutral buoyant uh, streamer. I, I it has a lead collar around the middle of it, right? First, you're putting a, a, the tail on, which uh, all uh, whatever tail material swims well that you like. Then you put that. Uh, that led in the middle shank of the uh, saltwater hook, and then around the outside of that lead, that lead core that you built up, I put um, 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 a bucktail, uh, little clumps of bucktail, maybe um, 40, uh, 30, and tied in all the way around that that thing of lead. And so the bucktail is you form a collar, you might say. Sure. And then then I glue the eyes to the outside of the bucktail. And the bucktail goes it like breathe. this. It would breathe. And yeah. so you created mass without bulk. You could get this fly uh, floats like a, and the wonderful thing about it, it's a neutral buoyant fly. It swims beautifully. It doesn't dip in the water because you got that uh, combination of lead and the buoyancy of a collar of the bucktail on the outside. And you got the movement because the eyes are glued to the outside of it. And it became a really good, realistic mullet pattern, which is what the roosters are really after in the height of the summer. You're, you're, you're chasing big, 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 big league fish with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, mullet patterns. Uh, a quick question, because with the trout fishing, these dry flies are, are quite specific. And with your with Bonnie teasing these things in with the teaser, I'm surprised that the fly had to be that, that, that specific. You would think that an average fly might be able to catch these fish, but you did find that your flies were that much better, even though you were teasing bait and switching. Oh, yeah, because, you know, people don't give rooster fish enough credit. They're a big guy jack, and they're smart as hell. And, uh, and and we noticed right off the bat, a lot of people were doing things wrong, even the good fishermen. The, what they do with rooster fish, you want to get going, get the fly going as fast as you can, so you're running backwards and stripping the line. 
Well, we noticed that every everyone that was doing it was running up the beach, stripping line back like this. Well, that roof's coming in at the fly. He could see that whole background. He can see you running up the he hillside. Sees him, and so we puzzled over that, and we we started uh, we started a different attack pattern. Another thing is, <laughs> guides wouldn't put a hook on their their teasers by bad form to catch a rooster in front of Clanthus trying to catch one for years down there, you know. So Bonnie says, in the hell with that. I'm going to have a hook on my teeth. But the thing about that was she'd hook one up. Then the guides would have 5 to 15 seconds to get the deal done. I get 5 to 15 minutes to pick out his pal because they'd all be circling a caught one. And I'd look for the biggest one. I'd go after him. And so I'd, they were almost so like dolphins. I was just going to say it's very similar to dolphins. It was. And so yeah. we were... We were highly successful at that. The guides would see us on the water, and they all oh, fuck. Uh, they they just, they take off and go around us and make sure we were out of sight because we were we were doubled up. Us well, not a lot, but if you, right. if you see two people double, they never caught a rooster fishing. You've been doing it for ten years. You say, how come they? Yeah. That old man is. I need a better guide. Yeah. So, but then we found that instead of when the roosters come in, we would run down the the bank uh, both ways, uh, either stripping in. And so the fish would see that coming, but he couldn't see us. Right. Because we were running, you're at the water level. We're at the water road run down the bank. So Bonnie, when she was cranking one in, she'd duck down and start, start going one way or the other, and I would creeping and we were always using camo clothes and we we're we we're, we were really really uh, uh like elk on you your you camo clothes so oh, yeah. your camo clothes looked like sand yeah sand and we were always we always had brown clothes yeah no no white hat or red hot right. gaudy bullshit we were all very uh and we we'd uh critique uh, critique each other something we probably shouldn't have that you know uh, she had a really nice buff that someone gave her, but it was not the wrong color. Interesting. <laughs> maybe to... maybe if you stopped wearing those pink pants on the flats, you'd catch more tarpons. <laughs> <laughs> maybe right. you can maybe you can learn All some right. from that's Steve. A, I've got a, that's a personal thing. Let's not go there, okay? <laughs> You should hear us on the boat when we're out there fishing. Well, he wears, all these, day long. he wears these pink jeans that has like twenty four holes in it. <laughs> they're lucky. They're lucky jeans. Lucky jeans. <laughs> Caught a lot of fish with those those jeans on. So who did tarpon the fi- are, tarpon are dumber fish than the roosters? So who who did the film running down the man? That was Frank Smethurst, uh, and he was guiding for me in uh, Henry Kravis. And I was just getting into uh, rooster fishing at the time, and he had already produced that movie. And I said to Frank, Frank, what do you know about uh, uh, rooster fish? And he's a smart ass from Telluride, you know, and he says, I know a little bit about it. You, know, you want to see my movie? Yeah, and he wouldn't, wouldn't even show me the flies, right? He was being kind of busting my balls. So after a while, we became really good friends. And arguably, one of the best fishing films ever made that was uh, done by a court, uh, Academy Award winning crew that then did the uh, documentary that stopped the pebble mine. Pebble, pebble mine, mines, yeah. And, yeah. and so that, 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 that rooster fishing story was, but that was at the height of when rooster fishing was really good, you know. And, 
you know, I don't want to be that guy. Oh, I should have been here when the Buffalo were here. Oh, that was the greatest. And I don't, I don't want to be that old pontificator because uh, it is the rooster fishing isn't what it used to be. And we had a magic uh, eight years run of it. And then it was just, we weren't seeing them. And we were out there every day and we were still doing what we're doing. It wasn't fun for us anymore. Right. For me and Bonnie. So, uh, I had it, and it was great, and I caught some of the biggest ones ever caught from shore. Uh, I had the world record on, <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, they don't have a world record for shore. You know, it was not. Uh, but I had uh, I had uh, three fish uh, north of uh, 80 pounds, one close to 100 uh, in, in that time we were doing. So I did, uh, we were looking for Moby, <laughs> Moby fish, you might right. say. Did uh, you change the game with the way you were fishing? Your fly and and doing the teaser with a hook on it and and hooking a fish and then and then the fly guy cha- you know casting no no one ever, no one's done that since then you were the only ones that ever did that no yeah you you it would be a really bad thing to do a guy it would be hard to, a guy to explain that to a client <laughs> hanging a fish and then maybe that client couldn't catch one or the other wouldn't wouldn't be good I don't think so right. They, ne- they never. But did how it. about other do your selfers? Do they emulate your methodology? No, and that's that's not entirely. Uh, we were just uh, doing that teacher stuff. Bonnie and I set up blinds along the <laughs> along the ocean. We uh, chased them other ways. A lot of times she wasn't casting at all because these fish were spooky and were weren't uh, onto those uh, uh, plugs at all. Tell so, me about the blinds you set up. Oh yeah, we well I'll, I'll, sometimes in, like in July, these huge fish would be right along the edge, and they'd be coming. You see them for two hundred yards away, you know, this giant fish. And we, uh, I'd take a, a bamboo sticks in it, and I'd just uh, put uh, uh, reeds in between it, and and I just stayed crouched behind it so that I could uh, uh, see. And then then we started an attack that was uh, critical to catching these fish. I'd be by, by the blinds at first. And then when they came by, I'd throw my fly, my, or else I'd have my fly in the water. I'd twitch it a few times and they, they'd come and eat it, you know. They couldn't see me. So we did that for a while. But then we found another way that was even better. And that was we'd see these fish coming down the line because they're, they're right on, you know, uh, roosters don't, they stay in close to shore. That's probably why they're not all shamefully netted out. You know, they're, they're not going to win. Anyways, uh, we'd see one of the big boys coming. And what I'd do is I would run out into the water and I'd cast just as far as I'd cast. Uh, uh, about, uh, you know, just a little ways offshore, right? As the fish is... Then I would run back stripping a line leave that off, fly out there leave that fly out there and it run backwards stripping <laughs> line off my mirror and i get more distance away from that fish. sure and as soon as that fish got in range where that fly was i just started running back and pulling line as fast as i could and i tricked a lot of big fish to not a lot you know i sure. uh, several that i would have never caught any other way i caught with that little method of uh being away from it. That's really smart. So you'd do that when you'd see that rooster out there 100, 200 yards away. Yeah, yeah. And way then, in advance. And, and a lot of times I was stripping. I was to my backing. <laughs> and I would just, you know, just start running backwards and, and pulling. 
I've been and, setting the hook with that much line out with you grabbing your backing to set the hook would be really hard. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, most, most of the time what I was doing is I pull a little bit of line in and where I get to where my fly line was and then I would just start uh, right. jerking and running. It seemed, I, there's a really good, the best rooster fisherman that, that uh, 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 he's from Steamboat. His name's Mike Orsi. He's the absolute best uh, beach rooster fisherman there was and pull he, that mic just a little closer if you will yeah just a little uh, closer yeah he uh mike orsi had a unique way of catching roosters and he, he is he legendary for catching fish when and around what what he would do he plunge out with a 12 weight rod and a full sink line <laughs> this wasn't pretty he'd throw to the fish and then he run backwards stripping with stripping like this but pulling with his his rod hand too like this Right, and and run backward, and that jerk with the rod hand was highly effective. So they wanted that bait fish flying, flying, and with that extra motion of jerking with his hand, he caught more fish than you. <laughs> you can't believe how that guy did that, and uh, it was it was real savvy on him. And I I imitated that once I figured out what he was doing, and I run backwards doing that double jerk was what I was doing, trying to catch those fish too. Right. That's interesting. You know, what's? I just wanted to say one thing. What was cool is I was at a fishing banquet. I don't know if it was like the IGFA Hall of Fame or something, but I was sitting next to Patty, Steve Huff's wife. Oh. And we started talking about Steve or whatnot or fish or something. And uh, we got on the topic and Patty said, you know, one of the only photos Steve has of fish in his house is of him with his rooster fish he caught on the beach by foot. It was that meaningful to him. So I thought that was really cool. I mean, mm-hmm. well, think of all the fish that Steve Huff has caught. Exactly and, right. You know, photo in this house is him with a big old rooster. I think he caught like a 60-pound rooster you know, wow. on the beach running like that. Yeah, yeah. it, it was the most intoxicating fishing I ever did. I, I you know, More so than your dry flies and oh, big fish. Well, you, you can't compare paradise to paradise, you yeah. know, and, and, and you shouldn't. Uh, but rooster fishing, mano a mano, being barefoot on the beach. Uh, people say, "Why well, you going on the boat?" And I say, "I ain't old enough yet." Uh, there, <laughs> there was no way. I ain't I, know what? I, I'm not old enough I, yet. I, I ain't old enough yet. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to sprinkle some sardines on the ocean and catch a rooster. Calling that's shooting. Uh, no tur- more hopper. No hopper groppers no, for you. No, no, that's shooting the turkey <laughs> out of the tree. <laughs> Paul Dixon so. likes to do that, doesn't he? <laughs> Just joking. So, um, so that yeah, it was. It became such. It was a madness like elk hunting because you, it was exactly like elk. You're not. You're. You're not. Uh, you're not fishing at all. We were up in the sand, uh, about away from the beach, hunting fish, and no one like my wife. She's like your remarkable son. He. They see fish that we don't see. Yeah, sure. And, and when Bonnie started running, it was like. Yeah, when, that, when that good bird dog started running, you get behind that something. You recall? Bonnie's going there, and she'd be squatting. <laughs> and all of us would be running, following my wife down the beach. So my uh, my good friend Roger Trout calls Bonnie the sportsman's prize. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Can you compare rooster fishing, dry fly fishing to elk hunting? Because I used to come over and elk hunt with you. Yeah. And elk hunting was a big part of, of your life. Well, they're they're all so similar pursuits. They're not for everyone. Uh, elk hunting with a bow is 
arguably one of the toughest things on the planet. You got to chase and you hunt deer, but you, you, you uh, chase elk, you know, and, and uh, the same thing with this, these, these beautiful big fish that are rising to little flies, which, which is, it's been going on forever, but that, that we can do and, and, and everyone can do it. And, and it isn't the big, um, it, it, it certainly isn't a numbers game with any of this. I, I, you know, I told you about the glory years of rooster fishing. Sometimes that was three good fish in a year. Mm-hmm. I might have chased them every damn day of the year. And that we, yeah, like, like Frank says in that, uh, run down the mat, I, I haven't done wins prints since high school. <laughs> here, right. you are, here you are, tired as can be. You, you got cramps in your legs and you're not, almost out of run. Oh, shit, there's another fish. And you're running down the beach. Action. And after a while, you look and your, your quad is like a little toy <laughs> way on the horizon. You got to go back to. So, uh, all of the three of those things are very hard to do. Uh, but, but the preparation doing it is as meaningful as the, the act itself. When I'm tying little bugs, I'm excited. When I'm tying big flies for rooster fishing, I, and, I, I, and I, like I said, I always tied a new fly for that day. And I, and I tied a great variety of bait fishes, the, the needlefish, you know, and we fish, uh, we fish a lot of, uh, uh, of flying fish. Flying fish is a very good bait for rooster fish. And so I was tying a lot of imitation stuff that, uh, uh, to fool the, fool those fish and monkey in with that. That was fascinating to me because when you go from little stuff to big stuff like that and uh, you're sudden, uh, you, you're going to craft stores <laughs> for Buying materials. bigger stuff. Yeah, it was, it was a great joy to me. It wasn't, a, yeah. I, I don't have to tie little flies to be happy, that's for sure. And it's the anticipation. Like part of tying flies is the anticipation on like what's going to come, the, the unknown of what's going to come, but you might have some sort of idea. Yeah. But, you know, like elk hunting, when we're getting in elk hunting, there's so much crap involved. And when we're getting ready when food and the, and the purifier in our tent, it's like, that's sometimes the most fun part of the journey is the anticipation. That's really true, Nick. Slamming the car door and going hunting is not hunting. And, and the further away get from the car, the quad, the, listen to that and, and to actually be a man backpack into wilderness places that is a true joy putting that stuff together and and then feeling that you're a tough son of a bitch to do it you know that that i i grew up with the appalachian mountain club back east so as a backpacker since i was a little kid so when i came to colorado i had uh, that skill set to just really love the mountains and so elk hunting and for years, I would say, "What are you? What are you?" I would, I would say, "I'm a wilderness bow hunter." <laughs> that who uh, that you was, wanted them to know exactly who you yeah, are. Yeah, I, I, you were, pr- you were proud of it. I was very proud of yes, that, yeah. that, that thing of of doing that. And and for there, I, for a number of years, I, I I was doing a really crazy thing. I was doing three to five days with no no fire, just going. And this was before Gore Tex too. So I had to. Two uh, 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 ponchos warm, and a yeah. little tiny down bag, and I would just live with the elk, and I would curl up and and then follow them because you, 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 in the hot country, I was hunting the Gore Range, and in the hot country, 
you didn't want to have to go back to your, your find your camp when you're chasing elk at dark. You want to be with them. So I'd spend three to five days with them, you know, and then you'd have to go out and regroup and go back in and do that again. So for several years, that was my game. Was uh, Sleeping on the ground yeah, with the elk. With the, and that was the old go light, go long Vietnam thing that they were doing. And I just uh, been backpacking so many years that, and I, I no no water because I had a water filter and was the you know, geography was big. And I started elk hunting in 1973 in Colorado, and and the other thing that I wanted to bring up with you guys, I came to Colorado when the fishing was the best in the world in Dillon Reservoir. Dillon Reservoir wasn't being sucked down for Denver yet because the Robert Tunnel, tunnel wasn't built yet. Mm. So there were weed beds all around uh, uh, Dillon Reservoir. So I had the great fortune of uh, having Buddy at the old Dillon Inn say, hey, you want to see some fish rising? It was in the winter. He took me to uh, the I-70 bridge going over uh, uh, the Blue River. Astounding three to 10 pound fish were in the water there rising. And they were being blown out from the Dillon Dam. Dillon Reservoir rated the number one brown trout fishery in the world at that time. It was it was absolutely bizarre. Wow. All the all the uh, weed beds around it were filled with freshwater snails. You'd open up any of those fish, and they had that many freshwater snails. They looked every fish looked like being blown up. They had little heads and giant bodies. Every fish in there was uh, astounding. The run up of the uh, into uh, the, the creeks from uh, uh, um, Dillon was like uh, Alaska, but the place below uh, uh, Dillon was absolutely the most astounding The fishing. Blue River. Yeah, and that was when I first moved to Colorado, and uh, 7X Tippett was just now being invented in the early 70s, you know. And I had met Jim Poor at Angler's All, who was tying the tiny little flies for uh, the, uh, the South Platte. So when I came to Colorado, I had the fishing skills for it, but suddenly I had a fishery that no one was fishing. No one was fishing at that time in, in uh, uh, that, that tailwater, and that's where I invented the dove ball midge, which is still my one of my favorite go-to midge patterns. But uh, th- there was no, no skiing, even on a powder day, by 10, I was down on that water because the hatch was, the miracle midge hatch was every day from 11 till 3. And those fish were, you, you could find a double-digit fish in that water if you wanted to. Feeding monkey, on midges. Feeding on midges. I'm was not, it hard to keep that a secret? I, n- no. You told no. all your buddies? My buddies, I had five or six friends that did too. But there was, it was such astounding fish. You could have one little spot and you wait for the uh, 10.30. Oh, here they come, you know. We'd be, we'd be sitting there waiting on those fish. And there was no fishing Shangri-La that I can think of before or since that I could ever imagine being as good as that. And also, there's an old state that's still there, the old state highway bridge below Dillon Residence. No trespassing from there up, you know. Well, crime pays. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I took my dad in there one time. My dad was out fishing, you know, and it was a 
it was in, in, in the snowbank going down to water. And he said, no, I'm not going in there. I said, come on, Dad, you can't believe the fishing. So I brought my dad in there. Yeah, he's looking around. My dad was pretty straight arrow about fishing. He never poached, you know, every other. And he's real nervous about me. Yeah, I was crazy. And I, I, put a, I don't know, I was pretty good at poaching everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my dad's looking around, he's all nervous. And then right in front of him, we're, we're in this. And he, we're kind of dug into the uh, bank of snow going into the water. Right in front of us, this maybe, oh, I'd say six pound brown is going bloop, 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 right in front of my dad. I didn't think he would stop. He started hyperventilating. <laughs> I'd like poaching now, Dad. <laughs> Suddenly, he was a poacher. <laughs> and liked it. Oh, did he love it? Isn't yeah. it the same thing? Like, and I'd rather uh, beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. <laughs> yeah. the same. That's yeah. the motto of a of a poacher. Yeah, and then and then of course I was. I was in on the dream stream below uh, Spinney for all those years. And they, they uh, that closed off in the upper section of that. And I was escorted out of that place several times because that was... That was a that, fall spawning uh, uh, brown trout fishery. It was, it, was, it was great uh, year-round. Year-round. When I used to take uh, uh, clients from over from Elk trout and dog days of, of August where couldn't buy fishes in the Colorado and the blue wasn't that good. I'd drive all the way over to, to uh, Spinney to uh, fish the dream stream with clients from elk trout and then swarm secretly on the way back. Don't tell any uh, other uh, lodge guests what, where, where, where we were. That's a long drive. <laughs> yeah. Because elk trout lodge was over here on the... Uh, yeah, uh, Kremlin. And Kremlin. Yeah. <laughs> so That's many. a big drive. Wow. Um, <laughs> But I think one of the things that, that was really um, pretty fascinating with what you did with this stream improvement stuff, you know, how did you figure out how to, how to make a river better? Well, did you study that? Well, I have been studying it my whole life as far as being in the river. Then I attended some uh, seminars uh, and like stuff. Reich, Don Reichmuth is the guy that put the horseshoe shape across rivers, and and I was very intrigued with that. So I studied Reichmuth and I went to his seminars and that stuff. But I always been monkeying around with rivers and and different stream improvement because I knew that um, I had private water to fish with people. Um, if I could improve that water and bring in really cool fish that that weren't uh, uh, really obvious stalkers. I, I, I had relationships with uh, uh, seven different hatcheries in four different states. And I, uh, I had people growing fish for me in, in ponds and not raceways. And I had access uh, to federal, uh, federal gene stock out of the Fort Collins hatchery. <laughs> So you had great, you had a great yeah, gene well, pool. Well, I'm not supposed to have any of those, but I had gene, gene pools that were unique, and I, I was able to grow tiger trout. I was able to grow unique cupbows that were strong, beautiful fish. The, the cupbows, you put them in anywhere. See, when I was when I was in the White River, we found that that, that river d doesn't have very good natural recruitment. Uh, fish grow really big in there, but the, you can't stock that river 
uh, or, or even improve the um, spawning bed and get any. Uh, Bill Elmblatt studied it for his whole career, and he was always frustrated they couldn't get that uh, river to have good natural recruitment. But what I found is the biomass was fabulous. There was no point pollution to uh, mining up above there. So the thing had a good chemistry with good bugs. So why not put in fish and watch them just flourish? And so I wasn't, I wasn't feeding any fish. I was dumping fish and watching them grow. And, but and you so, also had a great boss with uh, Henry Kravitz when sure. he hired you to, to uh, well, I, build Seven Lakes Lodge, yeah, if but, I'm not mistaken, but, right? Yes, yes, but before that, I was with Bill Wheeler. And Wheeler recognized the importance of having those fish in the sheen. And the Wheelers were really great people to work for because any good ideas I had, they bankrolled it. Right. You know, I had some, I had some pretty great luck in the lodge business because I had really uh, good teachers. When I was at, at Elk Trot, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm sitting there. And a mysterious guy named uh, Jerry Jurgens shows up with Julieta, his wife. He says... Uh, I'm going to show you how to uh, uh, build this lodge up. You're not going to let these rich bastards have the uh, rural Europe life. Come to my lodge. I want to show you uh, lodges I've been to. And he's, he then flew me in and took me around with his wife, Julieta. Julieta was uh, 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 the sister of the president of Mexico at one time. Uh, Jerry Jurgen started the first uh, beach club in Acapulco. His father was... Uh, um, standard oil, and he never went into the biz. He just became a random cage sportsman. When uh, Julieta and, and uh, uh, Jerry raised their son, they went up in the Bob Marshall wilderness area with their two boys, and they were pack, uh, packed into the Bob Marshall for six weeks. They didn't come out for six weeks with their kids. They were resupplied every week with uh, an outfitter. He was with this amazing guy. And he took me over to show me the 101 club below Trapper's Lake Lodge, which is the oldest and richest fishing club in America. And there's 30 members. Hewlett was in that club. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, Humphrey resigned over a racist remark at dinner during a Watts riot. Uh, they had 18 miles of the river below uh, Trapper's Lake, and they've been doing stream improvement on it since the beginning. So Jerry took me over to his club. He's a member of that club. And um, he uh, uh, showed me how they did the stream impenitent. Then he took me to, flew me to different lodges around the West that he thought were fabulous and did a good job and why they were doing a good job. And uh, and then Vern Bressler had come up with the idea of the Orvis Endorsed Lodge Program. And Vern was a fabulous guy. He was out of Jackson, Wyoming. He's, he set up many famous lodges in the Jackson area. And he took me to the lodges that he had and uh, gave me some uh, very good advice on, on uh, lodge culture and, and, how, and to uh, what I should implement in my lodges. And I think that's, that was a big success of my lodge business. Not that I was a great fisherman and that I had fabulous guide, because I did. I had the best guides in the business. Right. I paid them, paid them the best, and they all had to tie their own bugs. And, and that was I, a prerequisite. Yeah. And I'd say, let me see your box. If they, no, you know, I, and I had fabulous guys. And, and I knew because if you're with a jerk all day, you're with a jerk. It doesn't matter what food you had, or even how many great fish you got. You're bored and you want to get away from that guy. 
But if you're the engaged guide that's educated to the area and the, the times and, and loves what he's doing, that colors the experience. So I, I was, I was shown all that. I was introduced to really famous guides and I always paid attention to why they were successful. They were successful because they worked all the time. Yeah. They they came back. The boats were clean. And the nights were tying flies. The next day they're ready to go. They weren't smoking pot around the camp uh, all, all the time. You know, so I learned a lot from uh, those those guys. And and then another thing is, I was good friends with Art Lee in, uh, in Roscoe, New York. And Art Lee called Orvis up and said, "Hey, I know this kid in Colorado is doing a lodge." You all, you all let him be in this Orvis and Dorsch Lodge program that they were just cooking sure. up. So I owe an awful lot to Art Lee. He was a mentor and a very good friend of mine. Uh, and I can't say enough about that wonky, crazy man in Roscoe, New York. I can't tell you how many times I've uh, uh, went with Art and fished with Art in the Catskills. We're... I, I've fished with Art many, many a day where he ne never made a single cast. There were fish rising. There was just no worthy opponent. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Hey, one, yeah. la one last question. I mean, you've had yeah. such a great spectrum, and you've always been a wonderful friend. So fun to be around because you've got great stories. So and much great, energy. And, and great enthusiasm. What are you most proud of? Uh, what am I most proud of? I'm so proud of the fact that I was able to take the great gifts from so many people and cook it up and do these uh, lodges where uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I had that five months off a year. I'm, I'm happy that I've maintained the friendships with all those guides to, to this day. Uh, that's what colors our world, uh, these fishing people in our lives. And I can't tell you how many times in dark hours in my life, some one of these guides, guiding them with, I got a, I got a guide, uh, a, a, a job in Argentina in the middle of winter when I was in my lowest point, you know, my, all my people were gone. I had that seasonal affective disorder like you can get in Colorado. I was, cabbaging up pretty good. In the middle of that, a guy from Argentina calls me, says, Steve, you wouldn't believe the yellow dun hatch that we just had on Mageo in Argentina. <laughs> I mean, that sort of thing. I, I, I'm not well-traveled. But those, those unique friendships with uh, real wonky adventures and, and truly, uh, I... I, I I was supportive of a lot of Peter Pan types of people that were single men that were, weren't growing up and were following their great love. And, and by God, some of them are still doing that. You know, not that you have to marry. And, and, but some of those guys uh, are still that wonky, crazy bachelors that are doing And I take great joy for knowing everyone that, uh, that I had that remarkable run with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I came to Colorado when we, we were dancing in the early 70s. I mean, I, in the gore range, no one else was hunting. I was the only one hunting there. And, and uh, you know, then, uh, yeah, uh, 
Did you, did you ever did you ever know Ron Graneman? No. Uh, he was considered the greatest elk hunter that ever lived for a long time. There was an article in I think it was Outward Life, and he was the cover. Great efforts, great elk, and he went in uh, British Columbia, Montana, and Colorado every year. And in fifteen years, he put in twenty elk in the record books. Wow. He hunted without camouflage, with a a a, 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 a longbow, and. Uh, uh, he was my hero. I read this article about him. I'm I'm hunting in the Gore Range, and then I get to meet him one time. I, uh, one of my guides says, "Hey, you know Ron Grandman's guiding on on uh, the Bighorn." I said, "He is," and I took my father up there, and I went to his little little trailer and had uh, dinner with Ron Grandman. And I said, "Where were you hunting in Colorado?" And he said, "Oh, I only hunted one place, the Gore Range in Colorado." <laughs> <laughs> I went, huh? <laughs> the first place I had, and, they, and I was hunting in the same dream, dream right. as yeah. this legend. So you're that guy. Yeah, and he, what he'd do is he, he, he'd go, he hunted with a horse and a mule, and he, if he didn't have great uh, uh, running activity, he'd leave. He might drive two states over, and, and, and he was a rugged son of a bitch, but so he put all those elk in the uh, record book. But, you know, what are the chances that I'd go to the best place in Colorado for big elk that he knew of, you know, because that guy knew where big elk were. Right. Yeah. It was, it was, I didn't, I didn't put great elk in the record books, but I was sure chasing you, around. You were in the, in the game. Yeah. Well, Steve, it's so great to come yeah. over to Steamboat and hang with you a little bit and reflect about all these great times that we've had together and your, yeah. and your life on the water and in your innovative creativity with, with all these great bugs. Well, oh, thank you. And I've heard so much about you, Steve. So it's great to great to meet you, and uh, I hope to fish with you maybe on the pan one day. Oh, I hope so. And I fish your uh, your famous Chinese dissident foam wing done, <laughs> or, the, or your three to one, <laughs> and the chocolate. I, yeah, I like the three to one. That sounds really good to me. Yeah. Well, thanks I, so much. Yeah. I uh, off the record now. I I did did uh, come up with another fly called Puerto Rican Bride, but of course I took. Much shit for that uh, fly. Well, so. we're going to use that, so don't worry about it. <laughs> That'll be out there. That's right. how we're going to end the show. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Well, there you go. A great story, how legends are made. Thanks for coming on, Steve. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon. What a search beside story. What a search just a ride. Good ride. Just a ride. Just a ride.